Hello out there, Morris speaking. It's December of 2019, and that can mean but one thing. It's time for the annual Love That Album First Time Listens episode. Did I say episode? I meant episodes. I'm breaking this up into two parts. So normally what happens is we have one episode that's devoted to my music journalist friends, and then there's an episode where I will speak with someone in the community who normally does a podcast with me. And in this case, it's going to be my son, Max. He was on the show a couple of months ago speaking about the album by Cardiacs, Sing to God, and we had such a fun time doing it, and he really wanted to come on and talk about the albums that drew him in this year that I thought, why not? So we'll do a separate show about that, and that'll probably be out in the last week of December 2019. But this time around, I am joined by my good friends and music journalists, Jeff Jenkins and Mr. Ian McFarlane. Both gents gave very freely of their time to talk about albums that came out this year that they really loved. And in Ian's case, he also spoke about some albums that he'd heard before but hadn't listened to in a long time and how that made him feel. So that is really, really interesting stuff. At least I found it so anyway, and I hope that that is the case for you. There's a lot of Australian material, but there's also some stuff from overseas as well. So uh, you Northern Hemispherians won't feel, hey, who is this? But even if there is a lot of stuff that you've never heard before from the Australian artists, well, you've got some stuff to learn. Hope you enjoy. Anyway, what we'll do is we'll go to a quick break. Joanne will give you the contact details and then we'll get straight into Jeff and Ian's recountings of their favorite first time listens of the year. And I'll be back at the end of the show to talk about what's going to happen in part two of the program, which will be released, as I said, in the last week of uh, December. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 129. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm... We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes of Love That Album at lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Through the records, an hour or two, and I've about decided what I've got to do. Hello, welcome back to episode 129 of the Love That Album podcast. As I like to do at this time of the year, I love to go and speak to people about their favorite discoveries of the year. It can be albums that were released that year, or it can be something that you discovered from an earlier time. And one of my regulars, and the man who was on the very first episode of Love That Album way back eight years ago or something like that, music journalist Mr. Jeff Jenkins. Welcome back to Love That Album. And they said it would never last mo and oh, here we I are it was you that said it would never last <laughs> episode 129 congratulations thank you very awesome much. thank you very much so the reason that i'm here at shay jenkins is to find out your favorite albums of 2019 i don't know are they all 2019 albums? yes they are maybe a couple of uh, anthologies we might mention but yeah it's an annual tradition now it has I, become i'm so glad that you're still part of it this year just went by ridiculously fast a couple of weeks ago when you said to me oh let's get together 
together. It's time to do the best of for the year. I was like, oh my God, you know, my headspace wasn't in doing sort of a wrap up of the year, but I'm there. I'm ready to go. Good. Okay. Well, let's hear what you have first. I'm pretty sure I know what one of them is and I'm fairly confident I know what a second one is, but uh, let's see where we go. Well, we're going to count them down from five to one. Mm-hmm. So number five, I love this record this year, Dyson Stringer Cloa. We snuck into Sounds like a law firm, but it's actually an indie supergroup. Mia Dyson, Liz Stringer, Jen Cloa, and all very different artists. And when the first single came out from this record, I wasn't overly excited. I, I don't Falling Clouds. Yeah, Falling Clouds, which are a tribute to two great Australian bands from the 90s, The Falling Joys and Clouds both fronted by women. So it was a celebration of that sort of indie rock sound of the 90s. I don't know why I wasn't excited. I think it was just, I don't know, whatever headspace I was in at that time, because I now think it's just a great song. But it was only when I got the album and then I put the album on, the first couple of tracks have that sort of slacker pop vibe from the 90s. But then as the album goes on, it kind of goes off into different directions. There's an incredibly beautiful track called Can't Take Back. Now the days seem to be bleeding into one another And the words that you are speaking don't reach me, they don't mean a thing Which to me, it's like a classic Bonnie Raitt track, it's just achingly beautiful blew me away so I just thought yeah a wonderful record that I just kept returning to for some reason it just kept drawing me back in and I kept discovering new things from playing it I'm a big fan of Liz Stringer I really yes for many years you followed her work got a couple of her albums and I've seen her live and yep she's terrific but I'd never sort of really given much time to Jen Cloer and I'd heard Mia Dyson a bit and yeah, I thought, yeah, she's good, but there's something about the three of them getting together. It just worked so well and it was recorded in, in Chicago with in Wilco's studio. Yeah. Glenn Cochi yes. drums and it does sound like, at least from a production perspective, like a contemporary Wilco record, but that's a good thing, but it's still very much all their own and it's a warm sounding record. Yeah, just a beautiful, beautiful record, self-titled record from Dyson String Hopefully there'll be another one before too long. I'd love to hear them work together again. Yeah, and there was another Seeker Lover Keeper album, speaking of sort of supergroups, that's Sally Seltman, Holly Throsby and Sarah Blasco. They made a beautiful record this year, very much an adult contemporary record, but really classy collection of songs. I love that as well. But at number four, and I think this is an artist that you have loved for many years, like I have, Deborah Conway and Willie Zigger, a brand new album called The Words of Men in 2019. That's coming, but you don't want to fight Or maybe you'll fight me Hey, that ain't right The people in this neighborhood They got better things to do They think the fascists won World War II And 
it was a really exciting time being a Deborah Conway fan since the 80s. Uh, she put a version of Do Re Mi back together, um, and I got to see them live this year. That was fantastic. If people are not familiar with Do Re Mi, certainly check out Man Overboard, which was their classic single. But also well, another. It was, wasn't that our national anthem for a period of time? It was a very unusual pop hit back in the mid 80s, but a great, great song that still holds up today. And also a great song called Adultery, which didn't get as much attention, but a fantastic song from Do Re Mi. But this year, they did uh, an anniversary show for the Bitch Epic album. I was at that show. Her second solo album. Fantastic show. It's a cliche, but with Deborah Conway, she could sing the phone book and make it sound magical. She is just an extraordinary singer. just want to also point out for uh, anyone out there who may be Deborah Conway fans, but might not know that... Deborah and Willie's three daughters, they do harmonies absolutely beautiful. They worked with them on the album. I think Alma was the one who was not available to do the mid-year yes. concert, but Alma is making something of a career. She's But she's gone like back 60, 70 years doing, and is doing, doing jazz, old jazz torch songs, and she has got an incredible voice. If you close your eyes, you don't know that you're listening to a 18, 19-year-old girl from Melbourne. An amazing voice, really well worth seeing, playing a lot on the Melbourne scene. So uh, Alma Ziggier as well, and I know that she'd be someone who Deborah and Willie would be extremely proud of. Uh, how beautiful is it at their show and to see a mum and dad singing with their children? And this is a joy. And I, I was lucky enough to interview Willie Ziggier this year and talk about it. It's an extraordinary partnership, he and Deborah Conway. Been together like more than 25 years now. Obviously make music together. They live together, their parents. And then I said, what are you going to do after this tour? And he said, well, we're going on holidays, just Deborah and I. So they holiday together as well. So it's extraordinary partnership in Australian music, both incredibly talented. Well, Bitch Epic was the start of their partnership. I mean, it it's was. Not, it's not his name on the album. He was just guitarist for hire, I think, because Richard Pleasance had done String of Pearls and then yes. he moved on. And Crash Opera doing other stuff. But Classic story that Deborah was looking for a guitarist. She didn't know Willie, but he'd been recommended to her so she sort of checked him out and offered him the gig and he was like oh look yeah I can't really do the tour because he had a band called Tudiville which are a really cool um, indie pop band in Melbourne and he said oh look I've got this gig with my band so I can't really commit to the tour and it was just like one gig at the Evelyn in Melbourne and she was like who is this guy knocking back a national tour to do a you know a shitty little gig at, at the Evelyn so she was kind of intrigued by this you know and that was the start of their relationship because she was just like who is this guy I remember several years ago they both came on to love that album we were talking about the album that had just been released at the time called stories of ghosts but i went back and asked them about a song from bitch epic that i thought this is really unusual this is the first song that you wrote together now that we're apart and <laughs> the irony stab a knife into his heart and it was the beginning of a relationship that's the sort of song that you write at the end of a relationship I'm so mad irony in that song but sort of points to the fact that a lot of songwriters they don't always write biographically a lot of the time it's just they have a great imagination they're story writers no one ever asks a book author 
what happened in your life to write this book, but they're always asking songwriters. Yes, yeah, it is quite strange. What a lovely bloke Willie Zigger is as well. Because Deborah, something which is great about it, she's incredibly feisty and combative, which you know comes through in the music. On the new record, there is a song called I Need to Complain, which is a great song. Yeah. And so this record, uh, The Words of Men, is kind of about, part of it is about getting older. Um, there's a great sense of humour in there, but there's a fantastic song called Imperfect Words. And Deborah sings, I sing imperfect words, they roll off my tongue, I got something for everyone. And she does. She's just a remarkable artist. She should be in the ARIA Hall of Fame. And what a partnership with Willie Zigger. Any accolade she gets, she deserves. What an artist. I love this record, The Words of Men. At number three, another local singer-songwriter from Melbourne, Ben Mitchell. Why do you walk so slow? No place to go Why do you seem so sad Things ain't so bad I first met Ben way back in 1990. Now, I've pretty much written about music my entire uh, writing career, but I've written a little bit about television. Not a lot, but a little bit for newspapers and magazines. This time when I met Ben, he was starring in a Channel 7 cop show called Skirts, which no one remembers, but it actually wasn't too bad a show. I think they might have only done the one series back in 1990, and he was playing a young cop in the show, so I interview him for the Herald Sun. Just a fantastic bloke, and we ended up talking a lot about music so I remember walking away from it going wow for an actor this guy really loves his music and lovely guy then he went on to star in Neighbours and he's written a couple of books he lived in London for a long time but of course music really is his first love and he's made a few solo records Ben Mitchell's brand new solo record is called Slow is the New Fast it's a really gentle album but to me you know it also packs a punch and it's kind of like an album for the crazy times that we live in uh, there's a lot to this record he made it with Matt Walker he's an incredibly talented guy yeah as I said a very simple record but very very powerful record he's got sort of a bit of a crooner's kind of voice I, I played a track on the radio one night and someone sent a text in going oh he sounds like Marlon Williams which is probably not a bad comparison he's had yeah great success so just a lovely lovely guy Ben Mitchell this this is his best album yet. I'm a big fan, and it's called Slow Is The New Fast. This is my up-tempo number. You can dance to it. Gonna let my head down. Maybe just a bit. Cause slow is the new fast. Then at number two is another local artist. And there are so many. It's been just incredible in the last few years. The amount of young female artists just making incredible music, all quite different to each other. But this year, I love like the Montaigne album, Alex Leahy, Beck Sandridge, Olympia, Meg Mack, G Flip, a wonderful debut record, Thelma Plum, what a year she had, a songwriting collaboration with Paul Kelly and 
Sir Paul McCartney, extraordinary. A local folk duo, The Maze, made a beautiful record. Oh, I think I heard a, a track or two off The Maze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful record. But at number two is another local young female artist, Angie McMahon. Her debut album called Salt. And they're building things outside my window. She did a few singles over a couple of years. This album, I was waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. Then got the album. It's just a wonderful record. She's kind of at times really fragile on the record, but then really fierce. Um, Her voice just has incredible presence. Her voice is the lead instrument on this record. The aching, the hurt, it's just extraordinary. And I remember talking when this record came out, because obviously there's a little bit, you know, Courtney Barnett is one comparison, but she has definitely got her own thing going on. And a friend of mine just said to me, I was interesting, like 10 years ago, every young female artist wanted to be Missy Higgins, who's just an extraordinary artist. And she said, now they all want to be Courtney Barnett, which shows what an influence and what an impact Courtney Barnett has made, not just locally, but internationally as well. As I said, Angie McMahon's definitely got her own thing going on. But if you are a fan of Courtney Barnett, definitely check out this album called Salt. Fantastic debut record. And at number one, I think this might be one you were expecting me to come out with. I have a feeling it is. It is an artist. I don't know if you've heard of him called Bruce Springsteen. I don't know if you know him. stuck out as I go. I'm just traveling up the road. Maps don't do much for me, friend. I follow the weather and the wind. I don't know, has he done anything before? Well, he's just starting out. Hopefully he'll make it. He seems to have had a busy year, and it really has been an incredible 12 months for Springsteen fans, considering the fact that he hasn't done a tour, of course, but... This time last year, he put out the Broadway album, which was extraordinary. Then early this year, that ended up on Netflix, where we got to see it as well. Then the Western Stars album was released, which is my favourite record of the year. And then he made a movie, and there's a soundtrack album as well. So it's been an incredibly busy time, considering no tour. There was a lot of talk on the internet. As, you know, people talk on the internet. I, thought, I don't know if you've discovered this. I can't remember which song from the album had been released. Like as a, They don't call them singles anymore. We just Whatever, they released to the ether. And first time I heard it, I thought, oh my goodness, he's got orchestration. He's not done this. This is melodically rich. It's beautiful. It's heartwarming. I don't know if, if I'd discuss this with you, but I was never really big fan of his E Street Band projects throughout the noughts. So the Magic album is oh, incredible. So Magic aside, Magic is fantastic. I wouldn't even say it's not classic Springsteen sound. It was a contemporary, well, contemporary as he would get, but still a, a fantastic album. Really, really loved that. But the ones that interested me were more like the Pete Seeger project. Well, the Seeger one was definitely the big highlight for me. 
as a Springsteen fan, but Wrecking Ball didn't really do so much for me. Even going back to The Rising, I thought that had a few great classic Springsteen sounding songs, but I wasn't overly excited. So I was thinking, oh yeah, another, another Bruce album. And then Western Stars came out. And I just thought it was a thing of beauty. And I know that some people were comparing it to that Laurel Canyon sound of the late 60s. I'm still not completely convinced of that. Yeah. It's a beautiful sounding record, no matter which way you cut it. There's no doubt that that's been an influence, that Southern Californian sound, the Jimmy Webb kind of thing. Yeah. And for me, it was a really interesting record because it is a different record for Bruce. But I do hear things that he's done before. But I guess as an entire album, it's quite a different sort of Springsteen album it works together beautifully as an album and it had me thinking exactly what you've just been talking about where does it sort of fit is it it could be his best record since Tunnel of Love perhaps Mm. I certainly rate Magic so it'd be right up there with the Magic album but yeah just a beautiful record I saw the movie the other night and the movie is just wonderful to watch to see him just in this little barn but with the orchestra so it's just hearing these songs with the strings and you go wow this would be a great tour but instead of the tour we've got the you know the album and the movie they're great characters i think he remains rock's greatest storyteller and they're fantastic storyteller these are great stories and it just works as a complete album now one of the songs on the album it might have actually been western stars title track some lost sheep from oklahoma sips her mojito down at the whiskey bar Miles and says she thinks she remembers me from that commercial with a credit card. Hell, these days are ain't no more. Now there's just a game. Tonight the western stars are shining brighter again. Earlier on this year, saw the release of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and listening to this song I thought it could almost have been written about the Leonardo DiCaprio character in that film he's still someone who finds yeah, Hollywood perfect. new Hollywood has left him behind he's had this career but no one knows who he is yeah and he's just you know trading off past glories yes. of being in an ad being in a you know a scene with John Wayne it's and it's really powerful in the movie too because Bruce obviously talks about that you know he's almost equating it to himself to a point you know do you, you strive to be still relevant in the music world and of course he's still a huge rock star but it's interesting you, you just sort of see I guess a little bit of that insecurity and in him talking about that via that song it's, it's very, very powerful in the movie. And it's also interesting to see that Springsteen, as this major rock star who still has multitudes of fans, and I'm always reading someone who's put up a post somewhere in Facebook or wherever saying that, well, I never counted myself as a Springsteen fan, but a friend went and took me to a concert, dragged me to a concert, now I'm going out and I'm buying everything. So he still has the power to convert people in that regard. But this, it's a lo-fi sounding album, if not for the fact that there's strings on it. You would have sort of thought, oh, he could have made this on a budget for an indie album or something like that. So the strings would have added some cost. It had a major label behind it, but he's not frightened. He doesn't have to be frightened. He's Springsteen, but he's going out there. So I'm not going to put out this major stadium album like Wrecking Ball was. I'm going to do a quiet album. And he's done that from time to time since Tunnel of Love, the album that you mentioned. And really, maybe not counting magic for a second, I'd say this is probably his best album since Tunnel of Love. 
Yeah. I, I got a, an occasional co-presenter on the podcast, Davey McLemore, out there in Houston. Hope you're listening, Davey. And he says that Tunnel of Love is just one of the greatest albums ever recorded. He says, it's a grown-ups album. Yeah. And Incredible so record. This is in good company. This is a good, not necessarily a companion piece because that album is very personal. And this is more him as a storyteller looking from the outside, looking at other people. He's almost like a writer, a great American writer. Yes. He could have been a, an author if he wanted to. But it's a good companion piece that it faces concerns of him through the characters that he talks about as a 60-something-year-old. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't have made this album in his 30s. Well, maybe he could have because it's a story <laughs> yeah, album, yeah. it's more relevant. Now. Yeah, no, it's just a beautiful piece of work, Western Stars. And as I said, no tour this year, maybe a tour next year or early 2021, fingers crossed. So, yeah, it's been a really exciting year in music. As I said, so many different sort of artists some you know legends like Bruce and Deborah Conway some new artists like Angie McMahon we're so lucky being in Melbourne too we get to see a lot of these acts live we've lost some legends though this year I know it would have hit you very very hard Chris Wilson the year started that hurt really really big time and I don't know whether Sarah is listening to this podcast or not but Sarah just you know your own music is wonderful and just I've been following your posts about the absolute love and pride that you have for Fenn and George yeah, Fenn's just put out a fantastic debut album. Yeah. Two of them are really super talented singers and songwriters and musicians in their own right, so they'll carry on the family business of making great music. But uh, Sarah put out a terrific album a few years ago. The name of the band was uh, Sarah Carroll and the Left Wing. That was a, an album of really great songwriting, and I think George was playing drums on that or playing guitar, I can't remember. They're all multi-instrumentalists. And yeah, Chris, such a talented family. Chris might have put out some harmonica on that, but... It was a, a hard time for all of us as uh, music fans in this town. I mean, we we're always seeing every day, and you know, here we are in the early noughts and all the people who we've grown up, either people who we've seen in our hometown, pass on. Yeah, so that's been the sad part of the year. And then Damien Lovelock from the Celebrate Rifles we lost this year. Martin Armiger from the Sports and many other yes. great Melbourne bands. Stuart Fraser from Noiseworks. And then just recently, as we as we talk, Greedy Smith, which has really rocked a lot of people in, in Australia. Such a loved pop star and such a lovely bloke and so many hits mentors anything i'm reading a lot of people putting out their tributes and everyone saying the same thing what a lovely guy he was what a really straightforward no bullshit very happy to be doing the work and was just one of the nice guys in rock so yeah i was lucky enough to interview him a few times going way back to when i was just starting out in the late 80s and just always so welcoming so warm so funny and a, a, such a great storyteller so he will be and tragic that he died but as they say you know he died with his boots on he was still on the road he was a couple of days after um, he, he died in Sydney he was due to do a gig in Melbourne and he had gigs booked right through until next year incredibly tragic but yeah he, he just didn't stop touring he loved it I remember hearing a great interview that he did I think it might have been from earlier on this year with Brian Nankervis and they're talking about you know, probably my favourite metal song Too Many Times which he said he wrote while in a hangover He'd had in Melbourne, he'd had a huge night out with Swanee. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jimmy Barnes's brother in Melbourne. Some, having some drinks with John Swan. <laughs> had, a, had a hangover. And, yeah. uh, oh, now's the best time to write a song. And, <laughs> Which is a great song. So certainly check out Too Many Times. Obviously, Live It Up was a massive hit, which Greedy wrote, I think, in Canada. He came up with that song. They were on the road. Yeah, just an extraordinary band in that they had 
a number of songwriters and obviously Greedy Smith, one of the singers, Martin Plaza, another great singer and songwriter as well. That Mental As Anything were just jam-packed with talent and they had 20 top 40 hits in Australia. I was talking to a mate the other night and saying, you know, because I'm such a chart geek, if a band has half a dozen top 40 hits, that's a big band. People know who they are. If a band gets to nine or 10 top 40 hits, that's huge. You know, that's a really, really big band. Mental As Anything had 20 top 40 hits in Australia and a, a, such a loved band. And we, yeah, we're going to miss Greedy forever. There was a song which I'd loved for a long time and never knew it was a Metal As Anything song. And I believe that this is something that you played on the radio this week. The world seems difficult. How does it song as the song over the opening credits of probably my favourite Australian film ever, The Big Steel. Ah, yes, of and course. then I think uh, Creve Stenders, the director of Red Dog, had put out a tribute on his Facebook page this week and Creve had directed the video clip for The World Seems Difficult and he said, like, Greedy had spent two days stuck in water up to his waist and never once complained and was like a complete professional. It's a gorgeous song. Isn't it? Lovely lyric. And now that I know it's a mental song, it just has even deeper resonance. Well, it was quite different for a mental song, so I totally get why you didn't think it was because they did have this, you know, reputation for being wacky and zany and mm. what, you know, and they did have, you know, such a great sense of humour in their songs. The reason I wanted to play that on the radio as a tribute to Greedy was twofold. It's a beautiful song. It sums up what you're sort of feeling after someone dies. You know, the world does seem difficult. But also, that was the single when I first interviewed Greedy. I think it was 1989, and that was the single. And so I remember talking to him about that song. And so it meant a lot to me, and I always just thought it was a great song. One of their top 40 hits, it certainly wasn't a smash hit. But, and also it was produced by our good buddy Mark Opitz as well, uh-huh. who uh, loved Greedy. Didn't do a heap of work with the Mentals, but definitely produced that, that single. Like very Mark Opitz production though. No, because he's known as being, you know, the big rock producer in Australia, Colchis, all the Angels, Divinals, all those incredible bands. But yeah, a really simple, beautiful song. So yeah, I thought that was the perfect tribute to, to Greedy. But as I said, you could choose many, many songs. Well, I love that I've discovered now that it's a mental song. So. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how music sort of does that. That was certainly the sad parts of 2019 for me. But I had a wonderful year personally, and I worked on a Stephen Cummings and Anthology called A Life is a Life, four CDs, 50 tracks. Another kick in the head, another smack in the mouth, another lonely night. Where were you when I needed you? Where were you when I needed you? And a wonderful booklet, credit to the the record label Bloodlines who put that together because it it really is a testament to Stephen Cummings, just an extraordinary career he's had, of course, with the sports, but this is focused on his solo work. He's had more than 20 albums. He talked about retiring, but now he's out of retirement. He's going to do some gigs early next year. So that was just an absolute joy working on that. You know, he is just my favourite Australian songwriter. He's also like a really good general writer. I remember... uh, Yes, he's done a couple of books. I don't know 
remember when it was maybe 10 years ago or so and my wife Joanne went and pointed this out to me he was writing throughout the summer every week in the age about, about a swimming pool correct that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. really funny and really articulate yeah Great uh, articles. yeah an extraordinary artist just remarkably talented Stephen Cumming so I loved working on that something totally different I did a little bit of work on a Ronnie Burns anthology as well called This Is Ronnie Burns for people who might not know he was a big pop star in the 60s so around the time of Johnny Farnham and Russell Morris and, uh, and Normie Rowe and had a lot of hits in Australia including a Vietnam War song Smiley which Johnny Young wrote. And so just an extraordinary story, Ronnie Burns. He was a big part of Molly's life. Uh, Molly lived with the Burns family, so it was sort of like another son. He was in a band called The Flies, who supported the Rolling Stones on their very first Australian tour at the Palais Theatre in Melbourne. And so that was remarkable. But the really interesting thing about this anthology is that uh, it was put out by an English label, Cherry Red, and they were really interested in Ronnie Burns because he had a very close association with the Bee Gees. And quite a remarkable story, and I put together the liner notes for it, so it was great to work with Ronnie on that. And with the Bee Gees, their connection to him, their kind of A&R man was a guy called Nat Kipner, the father of Steve Kipner, legendary sort of Australian songwriter who found fame in America, wrote Physical for Olivia Newton-John and a stack of other hits. But Nat Kipner was an American serviceman who uh, settled in Australia after World War II and then got into the music industry. And so he was kind of the Bee Gees A&R guy, but also Ronnie Burns' A&R guy. He gets in touch with Ronnie and says, oh, look, I've got these songs. I reckon you could record them. They're really good songs by the Bee Gees. And Ronnie was like, oh, they're just a bunch of kids. Like, what would they have for me? Like, I'm not interested. He got the tape and he went, oh, my my God, it's like their new Beatles songs. They're just extraordinary. So he flies up to Sydney, is met by the Bee Gees at the airport in this clapped out old combi van. And they said to Ronnie, oh, any chance you could maybe put some, you know, petrol in the van? <laughs> and Ronnie's like, yeah, sure. But he's thinking, you know, why? I'm, I'm your guest. But he said he only realised when he, and he was staying at their house in Sydney and he realised then just how poor they were. He particularly realised that when they had one guitar between the three of them and the guitar only had two strings because they couldn't afford to replace the other strings but he said on those two strings Barry Gibb had written Spicks and Specks And he was just like, these guys are geniuses. So he ended up recording, I think, eight songs written by the Gibb brothers. And they're all on this anthology. And that's why there's a little bit of interest in the UK, because the Bee Gees, I don't have to explain what the Bee Gees went on. They then went back to the UK and were superstars. Sherry Red is a really good boutique label. They put a lot of work into their packages. so um. They did a great job of this anthology, so I really recommend that. If you're interested in that 60s pop sound, this is Ronnie Burns is the name of that. And just finally, my all-time favourite band, Horsehead, they've just released a box set. They existed between 1992 and 2000, did three albums, one EP, 
but they were so prolific, particularly in the early days of the band. You'd go to, I went to every gig they ever did in Melbourne, and they would have new songs. And you'd just be blown away going, oh my God. And so what it meant was they just had too many songs for their first couple of albums. But all of those sort of songs have now turned up on this anthology, which a label called Golden Robot did out of Sydney. Just extraordinary work on this essentially two albums of unreleased horsehead material and it just sounds fantastic so I, i'm just buzzing with excitement Let over that ask you are they were they as prolific songwriters as ed cooper because it seemed like in the 90s yeah you changed your underwear and ed cooper had another a, album another two albums <laughs> yeah probably not quite he took it to another level ed cooper he was like the slim dusty of the australian rock world but yeah they were prolific that were one of those bands you know sort of uh, didn't become quite as successful as they deserve, like so many bands. But if you are a Horsehead fan, if you saw a gig, you love them. They're just one of those bands. The hardcore following that they have, people who knew them, love them. And they're doing a gig at the Corner Hotel on February 1 in 2020. Their first gig, well, what will it be? It will be 20 years. And so I am beyond excited. Fantastic. So you're not going, right? Uh, no, I'm busy that night. Okay. So, yeah, I won't be there. But no, no, I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm counting down the days. I bet, I bet. February 1. So it's been a wonderful music year for me for a lot of reasons. New music, but also some old favourites coming back. Thank you very much. I hope that we get to see each other again before next December. But but whatever happens, lock this in. It's my favourite tradition, Mo. Oh, so thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so glad that I'm still here doing this eight years later. <laughs> well, likewise, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to episode 129 of Love That Album. Dave of polishing an antique strat that no musician could afford. He's got himself a twin and a pork pie hat. He's got himself a new jazz car. to episode 129 of Love That Album podcast and on the line we have the author of the incredible encyclopedia of Australian rock and pop editions one and editions two Mr Ian McFarlane welcome back to the podcast Ian. Oh good evening thanks Maurice that's a fantastic introduction thank you so much. We've done a couple of shows together but also over the last two three years you've also come on at the end to talk about your favorite discoveries of the year or whatnot so I hand the floor yes. over to you I'd love to know what has been floating your boat over the last 12 months or so. Fantastic. Well, thanks for the invite, and it's always good fun to do. I think we've been spoiled for choice with albums this year. I mean, you know, I think I've avoided the obvious pop things and gone for, you know, the, should I say, what a travesty the old Wards Night was just recently. But there were some good things came out of it. For me, though, one of the best things was the second album by the Teskey Brothers, Run Home Slow. Are you crying again? Will it be the same if I could? 
And of course, that won the ARIA Award for Best Group, Best Blues and Roots Album and Engineer of the Year. And what a fabulous band. Um, I love their first album. I've seen them play at least half a dozen times. Run Home Slow doesn't disappoint. You know, they're just such a funky bunch of guys. Soulful, funky, so in the pocket for a band from the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. You know, just young guys, but just a fabulous album, Run Home Slow. And I think there's been quite a number of rootsy albums this year that have kept my attention going and maybe I'll just run down a quick kind of list should I? Absolutely. Morris? Yeah well I think well as I said Run Home Slow would probably be my pick of the albums for the year by the Teskey Brothers there's also Bonafide by the Soul Movers You say that you're leaving but you don't go You say that you're leaving but you stay You say that you're leaving so I'll start a grieving but now I'm only grieving cause you stay very funky little ensemble. They recorded overseas and they recorded in places like Memphis and some of the classic uh, recording studios that the Stax bands and Big Star and all those kind of bands recorded in. And then one of our old guard, Brian Cadd, did a fantastic album this year, Silver City. Oh, Silver City birthday celebration that his Americana album because he recorded that in, I can't remember, was it Nashville or somewhere like that and just some great uh, American country session musicians but fantastic songs, he's still a good songwriter. It's interesting to see that people like himself and Russell Morris have still got a really great creative itch. They've been around for quite a long time and it could have been all too easy for them to sit on their laurels but it's wonderful <laughs> to see that they're still actually being creative, writing new material and putting new songs out. You've hit the nail on the head. I mean these guys are just, they're just very and performers, they're good singers, they're good songwriters, they tick all the boxes. So of course they're going to produce really good things. They just have to convince the industry. The fans still love it, but it's the industry that kind of overlooks them. But yeah, Brian Catter did, did a great interview with him earlier in the year about the album and he was so excited that it had come out or that he'd got it done. And uh, yes, that, that's a good listen. Stephen Cummings' Prisoner of Love was, was kind of fun. The wind blew hard and my heart did ache. The wind blew hard down my, my heart to break. A little bit, a bit sort of laid back, but there's some good tracks on that. Opelousa's fabulous Melbourne oh. band. I don't need to need. I got you. And I, we'd be hugging each other on this one. I was always like a big fan of Collard Greens and Gravy and loved Sean. Oh, yeah. We had him on the podcast November last year. We got to speak when I saw Opelousas at the Wangaratta Festival of Jazz and Blues. Oh, right. And I, I picked up a copy of the CD back then and oh. blew me away. It's just so gritty. It's a blues super group, really. I mean, oh, uh, yeah. Well, Alison Ferrier, I mean, she's just such a sensational guitarist. Kerry Simpson, I mean, what a singer. She's just got that voice, just the power. And even when she whispers, it's got power. And she's got that really deep kind of New Orleans kind of feel to it. But mm. they're a fabulous trio. Another great Roots album is This Is Not A Dream by uh, Lost Dragons. Such a quiet place. Can't see the human race 
Fabulous musicians once again, Matt Walker, incredible guitar player. That's got some pretty good songs on it. Morning Star, I Am Awakening, which is kind of a, a very long song. I really like Lucy Thorne's Kitty and Frank. My sister Biddy came by today Talking what she's talking lately Wondering if she'll cry or she'll stay so much which is her story of Kitty and the bushranger Frank Wilson, I think it is, and their love affair. So she takes the whole story right across from Golden Plains in Victoria to the Barbary Coast. That's quite an interesting listen. And I really dug the Dyson Stringer and Clower album. Driving through the middle of this white heart heat Competing thoughts are That's just magnificent, isn't it? I've always liked Mia Dyson. Not, I haven't listened so much to Liz Stringer and uh, I kind of like Jen Clower, but she's never really blown me away. But uh, the trio of Dyson, Stringer, Clower, fantastic album. There's a song on it called Falling Clouds, which is just incredible. I like that combination. I liked Nick Cave and the Bantee, Ghostine. Well, this world is plain to see. It don't mean we can't believe in something. And anyway, my baby's coming back now on the next train. Very, very minimalist, very, very down. Piano ballads, there's very little in the way of overpoweringness, which is what Nick Cove and the Bad Seeds had been known for. He's, maybe he's mellowed a little bit more, but Ghostine's a very nice listen. And for a bit of the heavy guitar, I really like the Daytura 4 album, Blessed is the Boogie. Good album, I think, and that's Dom Mariani from The Stems and Greg Hitchcock, who's been in bands like The Bamboos and The Monarchs. They've really turned up the amps and the big boogie sounds of things like Blessed is the Boogie, and they kind of hit a different kind of groove in the last three songs. There's a song called Not For Me, which is kind of like a solo mix of Joe Walsh and Leonard Skinner, and songs like The City of Light are a bit like an almost heavier kind of West Coast, Crosby, Still, Nash and Young, but it's a pretty cool band. They certainly turn up the amps to full. You say it's got a bit of a bluesy sort of sound. That'd be a little bit uh, for Don Mariani, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's normally like with the no. power pop. That's his signature thing normally. Oh, absolutely. He said to me it's, it's just a chance for him to kind of wig out so people don't hold him to his signature sound he likes turning up the guitar amps as much as anyone and together he and uh, greg hitchcock the other guitar player and i can't think of the rhythm section but they really get it going did you get to see the stems earlier on this year with radio birdman no no i didn't it's been a couple of years since i've seen the stems i think one of the classic gigs i ever saw was stems opening for the hoodie gurus and radio birdman about, oh. oh, about five years ago so 
I have seen those combinations. The last time I saw Birdman was when they did it the year before when they were supported by Died Pretty. So Mm, mm. I know, I just just love all that sort of stuff. Now, I was speaking to Jeff the other day, Jeff Jenkins, and he was telling me that the uh, gig, I think last week with Ron Pino, the audience were just in his back pocket. They welcomed him with open (laughs) arms, you know, considering he's had health difficulties over the last uh, year or so, and they just welcomed him back like a, you know, the conquering hero. It was lovely to hear. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's great to see that he's still getting out and about. Yeah, I have seen his gig advertised, but yeah, once again, I haven't seen that many. That's my kind of rundown of some of my favourite local albums of the year. I think probably the best compilation reissue this year for me was the Kinks Arthur or the Decline and Fall of the British Empire. Deluxe 4 CD edition. I love the original album. I'm not sure if I'm going to go out and buy a 4 CD edition of it. Exactly. Well, look, for those that don't want to go and get the 4 CD edition, there is a 2 CD edition, which is basically the original stereo album remastered with bonus tracks. And then the second CD is called The Great Lost Dave Davies Album, which is basically tracks that he recorded for a proposed solo album, which never came out. But I've had a lot of these tracks on, like, I've got so many kink albums and you know going back to the original vinyls i love the kinks they're one of my favorite british 60s or 70s 60s 70s 80s bands i've still got the 2004 reissue series from the kinks which already had like a a whole bunch of bonus tracks anything the kinks did from face to face in 1966 all the way through village groom preservation society of course the classic and arthur which was 1969 all the way through Muswell Hillbillies, Everybody's in Show Business and Preservation and, you know, all the way through to things like um, Misfits and Low Budget. They're just fantastic. But I think that some of those 70s albums are sometimes sold short. I, I don't think that people, yeah. a lot of people tend to care terribly much for anything beyond Muswell Hillbillies. And I rather like albums like Preservation and Soap Opera even. You know, they're, soap they're Opera, not, they're yeah. not bad albums at all. Yeah, they probably dip a little bit in quality, but there's always at least two or three three absolutely sensational songs on all those albums but I guess they run from face to face in 1966 up to, to my mind uh, everybody's in show business in 1972 I mean just you, you probably get 10 out of 12 absolutely sensational tracks all the way through but Arthur is a very interesting album it's basically one of Dave Davies kind of concept albums it's about a guy called Arthur Morgan who's kind of like a London suburbanite and you know he lived through the war and all that kind of stuff and he lives in a house called Shangri-La and he's got a, a young son and a and they decide to emigrate to Australia. So it's the story is basically the last day of his son in England and Arthur kind of reflects on his life. I mean, nothing much happens in the story, but but it's kind of like he supposedly Arthur thinks, you know, have I led a good life? What's it all about? That whole existential thing in the, the true Rave Davies fashion. But I mean, this has got classic songs on it like Victoria and Shangri-La. 
and brainwashed his album. In fact, uh, I've spoken to um, Tim about the Kinks. You know, some of his favourite songwriters are people like Ray Davies, and I think Tim almost built his whole UMI career around a song like Brainwashed. It's got everything that the UMI have done over the years in terms of the chord structure and the power behind it all and stuff like that. I've thought that Hourly Daily sort of sounded to me more like yes. a Kinks album than a Who album. I know mean, they're often compared to the Who, but yes. but that album has enough texture in it that it's strongly poppy, guitar poppy. But it's got that melodic feel that Ray Davies, I think, was always going for as well as the power. So yeah, more of a Kinks influence to, to my ears, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure someone like Tim Rogers would say that. But yeah, he's got so many influences. It's just one part of it. But I've always liked that album, Arthur, and this the big super deluxe four CD edition has come out and it's got demos and rehearsals and remixes and all that kind of stuff as the fourth CD and anyway that's a good listen so that's The Kinks Arthur or The Decline and Fall of the British Empire The Arthur or the Decline and Fall of the British Empire, that's the 50th anniversary. So, you know, that came out in 1969. So here we are in 2019. And the same for the band's uh, second album, self-titled album called The Band. That had a big 50th anniversary reissue. You know, all these albums have been reissued umpteen times over the years and they always find a way of getting people to rebuy things with alternate stuff and this and that. And over a matter of weeks, I listened to every band from music from Big Pink from 1968 in sequence going through to... The Band in 1969, Stage Fright in 1970, Cahoots in 1971, on and on, on and on, all the way through, and listen to the entire Last Waltz live album and watch the DVD again, mm-hmm. the Martin Scorsese film. Once again, you know, very rootsy, very funky, you know, kind of down-home feel that they had. Amazing songs like The Wait, obviously, that Robbie Robertson wrote, and uh, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, Life is a Carnival, which is a Robbie Robertson Rudenko co-write. They did a lot of stuff with Bob Dylan. I even like some of the later albums like Moondog Matinee, which doesn't always figure in the best band albums. You can't go past The Last Waltz. Joni Mitchell doing Coyote is just sensational. I just love that. Why'd you have to get so drunk and lead me on that way? You just picked up a hitcher, prisoner of the white lines on the freeway. So as well as having listened to all the albums again, I also listened to my band CD box set, which is five CDs and a DVD of live performances from different situations, things from the Festival Express Tour in 1970 and playing at Wembley Stadium in London in 1974. So, you know, this is just about everything you would want in a band. It's called The Band of Musical History. I lost my way down the line 
Ain't been back home for some time that's a big five CD box and it's got a massive booklet which tells the whole story of the band fabulous photos there's all the obvious stuff there's a lot of early material from Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks uh, Levon and the Hawks all the way through that sort of stuff to kind of early song sketches from the early days of the band then there's alternate kind of early versions and different live versions there's a live version of a track they hadn't actually done it on an album a studio album but it's a, it's a cover of a Dozer Holland track called Don't, Baby, don't, don't Do It Baby, did you do it? Which is just sensational. And they had a horn section. And... That was the last song that they performed at the last waltz. But I love the fact oh, that yeah. that's how they introduce the film. They start off at the end, and then they say, "Right, good night, <laughs> goodbye." They go through the credits, and then they start the concert off after the credits. But I just love, you know, that we'll we'll start the film with the very last thing that they did. That's why they're so influential, because you know the the big names like you know Eric Clapton and George Harrison always used to say how influential they were. But it's because they played. Robbie Robertson was a sensational guitar player, but he, in the time of Clapton and Hendrick, you know, who wasn't even a guitar hero, but he could play just as good as them. The other thing was that you know you had a funky drummer like Levon Helm, who was a very musical drummer mm. in the sense that um, he knew what to play and when to play, could sing at the same time. They had four separate vocalists who all had completely different vocal styles, and they didn't try and sing harmonies as in true four-part harmony or three-part harmony to make it sound beautiful, which I love harmonies. But what the guys in the band did was they would sing different melodies over the top of each other, different vocals. They wouldn't match, you know, they'd kind of go out of phase. But that was just what made it sound so good. You listen to anything like the weight when the four or the three different voices come in, they're all sort of over the top of each other rather than harmony, which, you know, is just as effective. And the other thing they had was they had a, a piano and an organ player. Garth Hudson was the organ player. And oh, they were all multi-instrumentalists. And the number of... Uh, Australian musicians from the 70s who've told me that the band were one of their big influences is phenomenal. I'll just run off the list. Brian Cadd, Phil Manning from Chain, even Lobby Lloyd, he's, he's told me how, how much he liked the band. Mel Logan, who played with bands like the, the Dingoes and uh, Carson. Right. Warren Morgan from Chain and the Aztecs. They all listened to the band. If you listen closely enough to all those musicians, you can hear that influence in a number of different songs. It's maybe not quite as obvious as you would think, but it's there. The other band that was even more so sounded like that the band, believe it or not, was Fraternity. Bon Scott was the singer in and there was a bunch of other musicians. They, they also had a piano player and an organ player at, at one point, so some of their records sound like just a match for the band. Bon Scott has that kind of gravelly, less than perfect voice. The music that Fraternity are, are playing, in some instances, is heavily band influenced. So there you go. I mean, we could go on and on. So what else have you got for us, eh? Before I get on to my discovery of a band I'd never heard before this year, another one of my all-time favourites, and I revisit them on a regular basis, is Fairport Convention and oh. solo Sandy Denny discography. She not pulled a double rose, a rose but only two went up then. 
I just love, in particular, the early Fairport Convention stuff, the, the late 60s into their early to mid 70s albums when Sandy Denny and Richard Thompson were predominant. I mean, they've had so many different lineups. Trevor Lucas, Australian singer guitarist, singer songwriter guitarist, was in the band. He, he was married to Sandy Denny at one stage. Those later albums that they're on are pretty good, but um, I particularly like the early Sandy Denny, uh, Richard Thompson kind of era. So, you know, I always revisit them, but. In this instance, my biggest discovery on, in the Sandy Denny discography, she did four solo albums in between, or after she left Fairport Convention, in, in between turns of going back to Fairport Convention. So I've got those albums, and I've also got a couple of compilations. It's one called No More Sad Refrains, which is a mm. double CD compilation. I've got that one, yep, it's great, great copy. Fantastic. Yep. Now, I've been listening to that for years. Uh, for some reason, you know, because it's a good primer of her material. It's all a lot of her good solo stuff, you know, a lot of good tracks from Fairport Convention. My absolute favourite Sandy Denny vocal of all time is, is on the Fairport Convention song, Who Knows Where the Time Goes. just stops me in my tracks every time I hear it. No More Sad Refrains is a good primer if you want to get into Sandy Denny. There's stuff from the, as I said, the early Fair, Fairport, her band with Trevor Lucas Fotheringay, her solo stuff from the albums, the North Star, Grassman and the Ravens, Sandy, which was her second album, Like an Old Fashioned Waltz, and Rendezvous was her fourth album before she died. But this is the thing. I'd been listening to this album for years and it's, all of a sudden I'd started listening closely on the end of disc one there are two sandy denny tracks from an ep soundtrack called pass of arm there's a track called here in silence and a track called man of iron They just blew me away. I just kept listening to them, thinking, why haven't I taken any notes of these songs? Morris, do yourself a favour, listen to them. Man of Iron goes for nearly eight minutes. It's the most haunting folk thing, and Sandy Denny's vocals are just absolutely captivating. Apparently, it was on a little EP from 1972 on the Island label, but it must be super, super rare. I've seen a cover online, cover picture cover of the EP, but it's supposedly from a movie called Pass of Arms. And if you look on internationalmoviedatabase.com, there's very little information. But having said that, these two Sandy Denny tracks on this soundtrack, which are on this compilation, No More Sad Refrains, are just magnificent. And they're both written by the people involved in this film, Peter Elford and Don Fraser. Sandy's vocals are just phenomenal. So that's my song of the year, Man of the Iron by Sandy Denny, which actually was recorded in 1972. We're all about the discoveries. 
Yeah, that's what I like. And but but this is what I'm saying. I've been listening to that compilation for ages, and I was, you know, I kind of liked the songs. But then, it just for some reason, I just kept listening closer and closer and closer. And uh, yeah, that's the one that I definitely can go back to. I mean, and there's just so many magnificent magnificent songs on the compilation. So, mm. so that's another big listening this year, Sandy Denny. So, what's your new discovery of the year, Ian? <laughs> Okay. Now, this is a band that formed in London in probably the mid-2000s, 2004 or something. They're a band called Still Corners. Murray sings and plays a bit of keys. Multi-instrumentalist, a guy called Greg Hughes, who also pre- well, predominantly plays guitar and is a producer. And for reference points, or if you want to... I love genres, and a lot of people don't like genres, but you can put them in the dream pop bag. So for reference points, you've got the likes of the Cocteau Twins, Portis Head, maybe at a pinch massive attack or something like that. And I'm not so much a fan of Portis Head or anything like that, but I love... The Cocteau Twins, they're one of my favourite band, English bands from the 80s. I've just loved that kind of guitar sound they got and the, and the pounding drums and Luz Fraser's vocals. But Still Corners, you know, that might be reference points, Cocteau Twins and the likes, but this is a little bit different. It's a little bit more simple, but a little bit more melancholy. Oh, well, Cocteau Twins are very, very melancholy, but it's more sort of eerie, dream pop, ethereal. Tessa Murray has that kind of mysterious sort of haunting vocals that, that you kind of you know, wonder where they come from. I, I even read one quote saying that they sounded like something like the Cocteau Twins meets Julie Cruz. Julie Cruz was best known for the track Falling from the Twin Peaks soundtrack. That's right, yeah, yeah. So that may kind of give you a bit of an idea. I think the early albums and an early EP are more particularly in that kind of Cocteau Twins meet Julie Cruz kind of sound, whereas they're third or the second album they actually recorded two albums for sub pop which is interesting um they had a, an album called creatures of an hour and then the second album strange pleasures which came out on sub pop in 2013 so by the time they got to that album and then the third album dead blue and then the fourth album is called slow air um they were no longer with sub pop but they kind of moved away from the really mysterious kind of cocteau twins meet julie cruz kind of mode and a lot more gentle percussion and a lot more of the songs are a little bit more straighter, if that's kind of the word. But the interesting thing is that I've got hold of their albums and listened to them, but I actually can't listen to a whole album. I, in this instance, I probably pick just tracks and then just move on. I've never really tended to be a track picker, whereas this is a good example of a band that I'm quite happy just to pick two or three tracks from each of the albums and then just kind of move on because a lot of the tracks do end up kind of sounding the same. So there's no great revelations. But the first thing that really got me was from their first album, which, well, as I said, I only discovered them this year, so I had to kind of backtrack. It's a track called Endless Summer. That's kind of in that Cocteau Twins meets Julie Cruz vein. But then on their second album, Strange Pleasure, there's a track called The Trip. And I should mention, most of the tracks are between two and a half, three and a half minutes, so they very rarely stray beyond that. But 
on the second album, the two standout tracks um, hit the six-minute mark. There's a track called From Strange Pleasures called The Trip, and then there's another one called Strange Pleasure, or the title track. Just astonishing. So I really like those kind of highlight tracks from each of the albums and then I can happily you know not bother with the rest listening to the rest of the album I just (laughs) just go for those tracks and then kind of move on so it's not something I would play very often whereas there's a couple of Cocteau Twins albums that over the years I've played to death there's a lot of listening recommendations you've uh, made there Eh? hopefully the listeners will will go back and discover all the great Australian albums that you've mentioned go go back through your Uh. kinks and band fetish and then still corner that's there's a lot in there. I know. By the way of Sandy Denny and Fairport Convention, I know it's mm. weird. I, yeah. Look, I don't know. I, I just don't have any set listening kind of patterns. I still get a lot of value out of local albums. There's a few things that people might want to dip into. I mean, you know, the, none of this stuff is hard to come by, but... You know, you might not get into them, you know, immediately. Whereas, well, in particular, something like Sandy Denny, I just love her vocals. I mean, she's just probably my one of my favourite female singers. You know, just the bell-like tone of her vocals. You know, once that kind of gets under your skin, there's absolutely no escape. She came up through a time like in the 70s when there were quite a few really great English female folk singers. And you know, there were people oh, like yeah. J- Jackie McShee and Maddie Pryor. And, you know, I love them both, but definitely I think I'm with you that Sandy Denny was the queen of them all. It's just the purity of the tone, the emotional input that just you just wonder where it comes from, how she could be such a good singer. Apparently she was quite a tortured soul in some ways, a lot of great artists are, but... <laughs> yeah, I believe anyway. she actually had some strong insecurities, I read. Insecurities, um, I thought, yes. Good Lord, if you could step outside your body, listen to that voice the way everyone else who's a fan of you does, I wonder whether those insecurities would still be there. It's just unfathomable to me because she was a genuine talent. Absolutely, yeah. Most people would know the fact that she sang a duet with Robert Plant on the Battle of Evermore on Led Zeppelin 4, so maybe some link. Well, thank you very much for your time again tonight, Ian. So are there any yeah. uh, articles that you've been writing of late that the uh, listeners should be uh, having a look out for? Yeah, Morris, I've been um, writing uh, a series of articles for Rhythms magazine on and off under the heading of uh, Sounds of the City with Brian Wise as the editor of Rhythms. That's his big thing was that he used to listen to the, the Charlie Gillard show, Sounds of the City, uh, in England in the 70s. And so he kind of got me in on this, I suppose, series of, of articles where I've looked at landmark venues in Melbourne and things like the TF Much Ballroom, mm. Armstrong Studios, and a few other things like that. So they're the old ones I've done. And I'm just coming up with the next issue of Rhythms magazine. is a piece I've done on the iconic Cloudland Ballroom in Brisbane which is a legendary place that, uh, you know, was originally built for ballroom dancing in the, in the early 40s. And then there was a lot of rock and roll shows at Cloudland and punk shows and things like that. The Clash played there, Midnight Oil played there, you know, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, so that's an article that I've, I've, that's coming up in Rhythms magazine. And uh, another one that I've got that'll be published soon in an American magazine called Ugly Things, which, which has been going for about 30 years. And that's always looked at kind of garagey 60s and 70s bands. And I contributed a rather lengthy piece on the colour balls, which will be coming out in the next issue. So that was kind of fun. That was uh, kind of nice to actually get that done. And it was published in a, an American magazine. There seems to be a little bit of a groundswell, a cult following for bands like 
coloured balls these days. The Americans seem to all of a sudden have caught on to, well, not all of a sudden, it's been coming in the last sort of maybe 10 or so years. Bands like the Coloured Balls, the Aztecs and Chain and all sorts of bands. People have started to dip back into that era. Some of the Coloured Balls albums have been reissued by American companies, American independent collector-oriented companies. Yeah, it's a sort of a timely thing that's going to come out in Ugly Things magazine. Yeah, I mean, Lobby Lord, though, was so influential that probably a lot of modern musicians have been citing that went through their parents' old record collections. Mm, Exactly. The more people hear this sort of stuff, the better as far as I'm concerned. So Mm, mm. (laughs) it's all good. Well, once again, thank you so much for your time, Ian. I hope that we get to speak sometime before December of 2020. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 129. Them kill them For the justice of your Jesus For the service of your My huge thanks to Jeff Jenkins and Ian McFarlane for being guests on this episode of Love That Album. Hope you decide to follow up on some of their recommendations, both old and new, and that will give you much pleasure, I hope. All right, so the other part of this 2019 first-time listeners' favourite, that sort of stuff, extravaganza, will be out in the last week of December 2019, so sometime between Hanukkah, Christmas and the New Year, and it will feature myself and my son Max Bishtinsky discussing our favourite first-time listens of 2019. I've got a few ideas as to what I might have in that list. It's probably going to be a fairly small list because I'd rather like to keep that a short program. But uh, it'll be hopefully an interesting discussion and maybe some recommendations for things for you people out there to follow up on. If you have any of your own first-time listens that you've heard over 2019, please post them in either to the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album or send me an email at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au and I'll either read out your email on the next show or if you want to send in an mp3 then I'll add it to the rest of the program. So for the rest of uh, the month, For the rest of the year, please be nice to each other and maybe into 2020, please be nice to each other because the world is in pretty shitty state. I know I say this in a lot of the programs, but yeah, people out there are hurting. I don't want to get political or anything like that, but it's really a bit of a mess. So uh, keep it local, keep it simple, give a loved one a hug, tell them that you love them and then go play them your favorite record. So I look forward to your company at the end of 2019 in the last week. All the best. Cheers.